Just a warning before we start. Today's episode contains strong language that isn't suitable for all listeners. Okay, now listen. How do you even know it was me? Listen, I'm about to leave. Okay? I'm about to leave. I'm trying to give you an opportunity to tell us the truth. Because right now, it looks like you're a cold-blooded gang murderer. That is serious. You are listening to the interrogation of a 13-year-old child. I swear on my life, I will never no more get my cover on Terrence. There's thousands of little kids that look just like me, too. <laughs> you guys don't believe me. I will no more get So listen, I'm done with your bullshit, okay? I've been doing this for too damn long, okay? I'm not going to tell you everything we have. I'm not going to tell you all the evidence we have. But you know what? You're full of shit. And when this case is presented to a district attorney's office, they're going to see your cool buddy killer. I don't know what they're going to do with you now. They're going, to, they're going to see that you're a gangster who lies, who kills people, who has no compassion, who fucking doesn't give a shit. Two days before this interrogation took place, a young man was murdered in the Pico Union neighborhood of central LA. It was another tragic gang killing in a city beset by gang violence. There was an eyewitness to the murder, and most importantly, there was also closed circuit footage of the shooting, both of which suggested the killer was an adult male around six feet tall and approximately 200 pounds. But the LAPD was convinced that the real killer was 13-year-old Art Tobias, whose mother had reported him missing on the night of the murder. Police officers show up at the scene after a shooting. They talk to the witnesses. That's Art's lawyer, Anand Swaminathan. Those descriptions are of a grown man, an adult, over 200 pounds. And they have this kid, Art Tobias, who'd been reported missing earlier. He's 5 feet, 110 pounds, dripping wet. The first minute you saw the surveillance video, it should have been over because he didn't match the description that people gave at the scene. And then you get a surveillance video that shows you an individual literally shooting somebody. You can see the individual shooting somebody. And that individual is clearly a grown man, well over 200 pounds, perfectly matches the descriptions given by the witnesses at the scene. Then the police, they say, oh, we can make that work. We can make that work. And they say, we think actually this kid is the guy in that surveillance video based on absolutely nothing. They don't even know that kid. They've never met that kid. And they say, that kid's picture on his mom's phone when she came in saying that I'm worried about my son. I remember that picture and I can convince myself that that is the person in that surveillance video, regardless of common sense, regardless of the witnesses said at the scene about who the person was that committed the crime. And off they went. How old are you, sir? I'm 13. 13? Okay. What's school you I go to Burn Number the LAPD arrested Art Tobias at his school, brought him into the station, and began to interrogate him by showing him the surveillance videotape. 
Look familiar? Who's that? You said, when was that? No, who's that? That, my friend, will be you. How does that mean? I wear glasses, but... That yeah. guy wears glasses, too. I never killed nobody before. Well, I'm here to tell you, man. That's a video of you being captured on the 18th after midnight. I was at home at midnight. Negative. You weren't at home you at midnight. You can ask my mom. I was at home at midnight. You weren't at home at midnight. You could call my mom right now and ask her. I was home your, at midnight. Your mom had a report on you. The only reason that we even came around to you is because somebody gave you up. How, how else will we know who you are? They interrogate him at length and accuse him of committing this crime, and he says, no, no, no. The proof is we already have somebody that gave you up. That's number one. Number two is we have the video to support what they said you did. They said you were on this street right here at this time. What street is that? Alvarado Terrace. What the hell are you guys talking about? That's not me. I don't know how else to tell you. That's not me. Okay. And then he's like, who's that? What's what's going on? And they're like, that's you. That's Art's other attorney, David Owens. And he's like, I don't know how else to tell you. I don't know how else to tell you. That's not me. That's not me. That's not me. Again and again and again. And then he says in the middle of this, can I have an attorney? That's not me. Well, uh, you know what? We're here to speak to you to get your statement. Now, if your statement is that that's not you, don't worry, we're going to write it down just the way you said. That's not Can I have me. an attorney? Because that's not me. Quote, can I have an attorney? Because that's not me. Answer is, but, okay, no. Right? The words that come out of the of the detective's response, the only word that matters is no. That's not Can I have me. an attorney? Because that's not me. Okay, no, don't worry. You you say, he says, no, don't worry, you'll have the opportunity. You'll have the opportunity when? He just invoked his rights. And your response was, to, to, could I have an attorney? A 13-year-old asked for an attorney. And the answer is no. We haven't even gotten to the worst part yet. Yes, this is extremely egregious, flagrant police conduct. But this is just a straight-up Fifth Amendment violation. This you would see on Cops and all those weird shows. We haven't even gotten to the real, really terrifying shit that happened during this interrogation of a child. Okay, but listen, you need to man up. You, you got your mom in this. You got an officer east in this. You got some of your homies in this fucking mess. Okay, you're 13 years of age. You're a young kid. A court is going to take that into consideration. But you can't sit here and lie to the detectives. You can't do that. That's making you look like a cold-blooded killer. Think about that. They call him a motherfucker multiple times during the course of that interrogation. They tell him a judge is going to come down on you. They tell him, boy, if you don't confess to this crime, who knows what a judge is going to do to you? Who knows what's going to happen? You're going to be treated like you're the, the most evil kind of gangbanger around, and, and you're going to have big problems. I swear on my life, I will never do or get back over on territory. There's thousands of little kids that look just like me, too. <laughs> You guys don't believe me. I was the fuck you. So listen, 
I'm done with your bullshit, okay? I've been doing this for too damn long, okay? I'm not gonna tell you everything we have. I'm not gonna tell you all the evidence we have. I'm sure my partner's already told you, okay? But you know what? You're full of shit. And when this case is presented to a district attorney's office, they're gonna see you're a cool buddy killer. I don't know what they're gonna do with you now. They're gonna, they're gonna see that you're a gangster who lies, who kills people, who has no compassion, who fucking doesn't give a shit. I don't know what it takes to get into, into your mind here. But when we write this up, we're gonna write it how, how it is. And right now, it looks like you're a cold-blooded MS gangster who doesn't give a fuck who's down for the hood. That's what it's gonna look like. So when the judge looks at the case, you think he's gonna give a fuck about you? Based on this coerced confession, Art Tobias was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years in prison. But on appeal, the California Court of Appeals reversed the trial court's ruling, concluding that the LAPD violated Art Tobias's Fifth Amendment rights. After serving three years in jail, for a crime he did not commit, the charges against Art Tobias were dismissed and he was released. Art and his mother then sued the officers who interrogated him for violating his constitutional rights. But yet again, qualified immunity has kept his case from going to court. Art Tobias was wrongfully convicted of a crime. His constitutional rights were clearly violated when he was denied his access to an attorney. A California appellate court said this was a clear constitutional violation, and they got this kid out of prison forthwith. City of Los Angeles gets sued. What do they do? City of Los Angeles says, we're going to fight this, and I can actually fight this and win because I have the defense of qualified immunity. Art's civil suit centered on two claims— the first was his clear and unequivocal request for a lawyer. Can I have an attorney? Because that's not me. That's not I me. have an attorney because that's not me. But the city of Los Angeles challenged that claim, arguing that their officers should be granted qualified immunity because there was no prior case where a minor invoked his Fifth Amendment right with the exact words can I have an attorney? There are cases that say, could I have an attorney? May I have an attorney? But there's no one that says, can I have an attorney? So because of a difference between can, could, may, should, this claim does not even go to trial, does not even go to a jury. Did you get that? Because I personally find it infuriating and I really want to make sure you understand what the city of Los Angeles was arguing here. Qualified immunity says that for a civil case to go to trial, an officer must have been put on notice that what they were doing was unconstitutional. And how would that officer know what they were doing was unconstitutional? Well, the Supreme Court says the law must be clearly established which is to say 
there must be a precedent, a prior case, with nearly identical set of facts that would have told that officer that what they were doing was illegal. Now, there were prior cases in the Ninth Circuit where a minor being questioned by the police said, Could I have an attorney? Or simply, I want an attorney. But there were no cases where the minor said, Can I have an attorney? And because of that difference between the words can and could, the officers who interrogated Art Tobias argued there was no way for them to know that what they were doing was wrong and that the case against them should be dismissed because of qualified immunity. Luckily, the Ninth Circuit rejected that argument. For three years, we've been in this debate because of qualified immunity about can versus could. And we're lucky that the appellate court said, we agree that there really is no difference between can versus could. And we're lucky. I mean, but, but why should a court ever be sitting and engaging in an analysis about the word can versus could? And tomorrow, there could be a new art to bias. And that art to bias, God forbid, he says, may I speak to a lawyer instead of can I have a lawyer? And he might be out. He might lose on qualified immunity. The next Art Tobias could very easily lose if he doesn't say the words can and could in the exact way that Art Tobias has said it happened to say it and the previous cases happened to say it. But Art Tobias's case doesn't end there. It gets even more complicated. You see, in the very same decision, the court granted the officers qualified immunity on the question of whether or not they violated R. Tobias's 14th Amendment rights. Their reasoning? Because, and I'm quoting here, it was not clearly established that the abusive interrogation techniques used by the officers rose to the level of abusive power that shocks the conscience. How? How is that possible? How is it okay for the police to lie to a child so that they can force a confession out of him for a murder he didn't commit? How does that not rise to the level of abuse that shocks the conscience? Well, it turns out the only prior case involving the coercive interrogation of a child was six hours long, and Art Tobias's interrogation was two hours long. Six hours versus two hours. Because of that four-hour difference, the court said there was no clearly established law that would have put the officers on notice that what they were doing was unconstitutional. There was a six-hour interrogation, there was a 14-hour interrogation, and they said, this interrogation was only two hours. Art's lawyer, David. Even though all of the tactics were bad, it wasn't as prolonged and therefore not as conscience-shocking. And Anand. Time only matters because of qualified immunity. And it only matters in the qualified immunity analysis if you convince yourself that that poor officer knows from the Supreme Court that you don't get 
to interrogate kids using a whole bunch of problematic tactics for six hours. But this poor officer couldn't possibly know that you couldn't do all these problematic things for only two hours because nobody's told him you can't do it for two hours. They've only told him he can't do it for six hours. Think about the how, how what sophistic nonsense that is. We'll be right back. I swear on my life, I will never nor get my cover on terrorists. There's thousands of little kids that look just like me, too. <laughs> you guys don't believe me. I was the fucking listen. You're full of shit. And when this case is presented to a district attorney's office, they're going to see you're a cold body killer. I don't know what they can do with you now. They're going to they're gonna see that you're a gangster who lies, who kills people, who has no compassion, who fucking doesn't give a shit. Welcome back to Unaccountable with me, Ben Cohen. And me, Aloe Black. We're joined now by Ohio State Senator Nina Turner. Nina, thanks so much for joining us on Unaccountable today. How are you doing? Great to be with you both. Hello. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. Good. BC, how you doing? I'm doing good, but you're the one who's running for Congress, man. <laughs> how you doing? I need a damn clone if you want to know the truth. I need two or three of them. I am placing my order that. right now. <laughs> it's tough work. You know, you got to be in a million places at once. Yeah, you really do. And it's a lot of competing forces sometimes. Ultimately, you try to, you hope and you work towards the centering of certain things, like high-minded ideas, for example, justice for all. And I know we're going to be talking about a little justice for all, but it's when you get into the details that there may be some divergence. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I've been wondering about, you know, is it really justice if you're only talking about justice for yourself. No, it's not. Right. It's not. Justice for all. Justice for all. That's why they say for all. They don't just say and justice. That's right. They say justice for all. Right. Justice for all. That's right. It's a nice idea. Now we got to make it happen. So true. We got to make our principles marry the practice. Absolutely. And there's so many different ways. You know, watching... In the wake of the murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police, Derek Chauvin, we have seen so many people step into the light to discuss police reform, justice system reform. And there are many different angles to approach this kind of reform. One of the, the approaches I found early on was ending this little-known Supreme Court doctrine called qualified immunity. So, you know, I want to I ask you, Nina, what is it that made you so passionate about joining this campaign to end qualified immunity? I mean, service to my community certainly has made me aware of the, even calling it fissures in the system as being too nice about it. I mean, the system really is operating the way it was de designed to operate. And sometimes that's hard for us in this country to admit that. But we got to start there with admitting that you got to understand the problem before you can fix the problem. And it really is about bad law enforcement. This is not ending qualified immunity is not about hurting people who are good in law enforcement. As a matter of fact, qualified immunity is about other publicly elected officials, too. We don't talk a whole lot about that. It was not just designed for 
law enforcement, but certainly those in law enforcement uh, take advantage of it the most. And when I say advantage, I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way, but when it comes to bad law enforcement folks, i.e. police officers, uh, this has become a, it didn't just become a problem, been a problem for a very long time. But I think the moment I learned, the way you opened up to talk about the murder of George Floyd have certainly awakened some sleeping giants about the fact that we need to uh, do away with qualified immunity so that bad police officers are not protected. And I keep saying law enforcement, so I'm going back and forth between the two because we have other law enforcement entities that is not not just police. Okay, so yeah, like um, the prison guards would be yeah, or sheriffs, other law enforcement. Or, yeah, definitely. Sheriffs. Mm-hmm. You know, it it seems to me that Congress passed this law. They made it really clear if a policeman violates your rights, you can sue him. I mean, that's so simple, and it makes so much sense. And then the Supreme Court justices kind of gummed it all up and made it so complex and made it so that cops continue to get away with murder. Overcorrect, I think, is one way. I mean, on one hand, you don't want frivolous lawsuits the intent, I think, of qualified immunity may have been, and here I say the word may, in terms of having allowing public officials to be able to do their jobs. But what has happened is that those in law enforcement get, you know, qualified immunity. Bar none, we're not even going to look into it deeply. Just whatever they do is okay, even up into killing uh, unarmed people. And we know disproportionately communities of color are impacted by that. It is a caste and class meaning people of color, especially black people and also poor people. This entire justice system, I mean, while we're talking about qualified immunity, the entire system uh, needs reform from the streets to the courthouse. Yeah, you know, what gets me is that, you know, we hear about these murders, but, you know, day in, day out, there is uh, beatings, there's there's punches, there's uh, insults. I mean, it's just the tip of the iceberg. That's right. And his behavior really unbecoming. So, BC, you, you bring up you bring up a very important point that qualified immunity is on the total opposite end of the spectrum. Let's let's do something about that. But what you're talking about is how those in law enforcement comport themselves towards citizens that they took an oath to protect and serve and whether or not they see the people who they took an oath to protect and serve as deserving of protection and service. And it seems to be, not just seems, I'm going to use that word. It seems that if you are black, if you are brown, if you are indigenous, but especially black, that protect to serve doesn't necessarily work. So that is a, a space that we really need to talk about. I mean, falsification of uh, police reports, too, I believe. We need reform right there, too. I think it should be a felony for a law enforcement officer after yeah, investigation. Absolutely. You know, let the investigation take But if it is determined that that law enforcement officer falsified, deliberately falsified their reports, because that has hurt a lot of people, too. Just flat out lying on folks on reports so they, they look good and they make the person that they are supposed to be uh, in service to just flat out lying. Let me not even and make it pretty. Just lying. Yeah. And, and, and 
right now they get quote unquote disciplined when they do that, but they're still on the yes. force. I, I, it's amazing to me. I mean, these guys are supposed to be the most trustworthy people in our society. When you're saying, uh, you know, deliberately uh, falsifying reports, this is what the crux is of the, just the change that the Supreme Court made to the Section 1983 of the Civil Rights um, Statute in, in making this concept of, of uh, purposeful and deliberate and knowingness, right, um, a, a bit more vague where a law enforcement or state actor who um, commits some egregious act can get away with no accountability or no responsibility because there was no clearly established law or they couldn't have known that there was a clearly established law. So the concept of deliberate really makes things hard. I think, you know, for everyone else, ignorance of the law is no excuse. That is true. That You're absolutely right. And why, why should for an actual enforcer of the actual law – why should they have the benefit of the doubt that they were ignorant of the law? How are they enforcing law if they're ignorant of it? Sounds like a huge contradiction to me. I, I mean, there's been surveys put out by Cato and uh, Americans First Prosperity that show that, I don't know, it was something like 80% of Americans believe that uh, ignorance of the law should be no excuse for police as well. I mean, that's that's a basic tenant of our society. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Nobody is above the law or below the law. So those who are <laughs> who are taking the oath to, to uphold the law, to protect and serve should definitely know. So I do. I, it is quite uh, complicated. And but these things are not new. These challenges are not new. You know what's new? The technology that allows the black community in particular I'm using the black community as the major example because we know that there are more black men in prison, et cetera, et cetera. Using them as an example for a broader problem that we have in this country when it comes to people of color and then poor people. What we do know is that the system itself was not ever designed to protect and serve the black community. You know, policing started off as the as a as the as the the slave patrols. We don't want to talk about that. And also what we see in policing is really a microcosm of what is happening in this country, whether it is criminal justice or injustice system, whether it's economic, political, environmental, all of that, all of those, there's an intersectionality here. And so when we look at policing, we must be looking at ourselves as a nation, too. That something is wrong and we must fix it. Systemic problems require systemic solutions. And that is why ending qualified immunity is one step on a longer journey towards reforming. And some people would say, you know, tear the whole thing up and start all over again. But certainly reforming a, a criminal justice system that uh, there's very little justice in it, especially if you're black. Yeah, Mitch McConnell uh, aired concerns recently about qualified immunity and asked the question, without qualified immunity, how do we get people to do law enforcement work? What do you say to that? We get we get them to do it the right way. Mm-hmm. You know? And there there is no doubt. I mean, I have family members who are in law enforcement. I mean, my son is in law enforcement. So to have a millennial son who walks this earth as a young black man in America, 
sometimes with a badge and a gun, sometimes without. I get I get this in all of its all of the sides of it. So of course, I want my son protected at all times. I want him protected to have, you know, protection when he is protecting a servant. And I want him to have protection just as a black man in America. And so Mitch McConnell is a false equivalency that he's throwing out. It's a red herring that he's throwing out. And we shouldn't pay attention to what he's saying on this because you can have, we can have law enforcement officers who uphold the law who respect the right and the dignity of the people who are in their custody. We can have all of those things. Why does it have to be either or? Yeah, I mean, McConnell is essentially saying that, well, if you're going to require police to obey the law, then you're not going to be able to get police to do the job, which is absurd. I mean, we don't want people wanting to believe, wanting to be policemen who don't want to obey the law. That's it. And just treat people with a modicum of dignity. We're not even asking for a lot. Remember that the, the second lieutenant that was just stopped at the gas station a few months ago. And, you know, he, he wanted to go where there was a place where it was lit. He was afraid. Even before we get to, that is not even a, a, the situation that occurred has nothing to do with qualified immunity. It is just the basic, how do you treat somebody? They treated this man like a third class citizen and told him, we're going to light you up. What? And if we don't get rid of qualified immunity, they get permission to keep on doing that. The key to qualified immunity is that it holds cops accountable. I mean, you can do any kind of training you want. You can make any kind of rules you want. But if you don't hold them accountable, it's kind of like wink, wink, you know, oh, we're saying do this, we're saying do that. But if you don't do it, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, there has to be rules, no doubt. You say you mentioned your your son is a law enforcement officer. And would you imagine that the concept of uh, being held responsible for his actions is constantly on his on his conscience, does he recognize um, that with the immunity offered from the Supreme Court uh, that he or his peers can do whatever they want? No, my son doesn't operate like that. So, no. I wonder if we had, you know, a, a, a group of law enforcement officers speaking about qualified immunity, to what extent they would say that it knowing that there's no real accountability measure um, for their actions, whether that weighs into how they operate in their job. I mean, I would imagine that it does. Yeah, I don't think most good law enforcement officers walk around thinking about, is there going to be a consequence or not? There is a consequence for good policing and a consequence for bad policing. And what we're saying, I mean, what this movement is about, what, what you and... And, and Ben are talking about, we really are talking about bad, not protecting bad police. Of course, we want law enforcement officers who are doing their job by the letter, letter of the law. We do want them protected or any other public official for that matter. We want them protected. What we're saying is that there shouldn't be on the other side of that, this extremism. And that's what qualified immunity is right now. It's extreme to the other side of it. You know, I had an opportunity a few months ago to talk to some uh, African-American 
police officers, uh, the Black Shield of Cleveland, which is a, a union within a union for black officers. It had to be established because guess what? Once upon a time, uh, black officers did not have a place to go in, in a regular union setting. And so this organization was created to give them an opportunity to be together, to talk about the challenges and also the opportunities of policing. And to, to that particular group, they support, you know, doing away with qualified immunity. So again, I guess my point is, is that if you are a good law enforcement person, you are not necessarily saying I can go out there and do whatever I want because I have qualified immunity. What you are really trying to do is to serve. And let me further say, I believe many of the answers or at least the deep rooted discussions about how to reform a system that is not just at all should come through black law enforcement officers and Hispanic law enforcement officer and women, you know, people who are, who represent the populations who are the most marginalized because they have to live dual lives, if you will, you know, in the souls of black folks. Uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois talks about, you know, blackness in America. Now, he wasn't making reference to what we're talking about in terms of qualified immunity. But I bring that up as by way of example, because it's 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 two souls worn in one black body is what he talked about in the souls of black folks. And when I was talking to those black law, uh, black police officers, I could feel, you know, through the conversation, like the heaviness that they had trying to navigate both of these worlds. Being part of a profession that they that they love and they enjoy and the reason why they wanted to become police officers in the first place. And then on the other hand, all of the drama and trauma that is taking place in this country at the hands of bad law enforcement and to take that further, they're black in America. I mean, that is a whole lot of pressure. For black people and then other people of color who are in this profession for the right reasons. So I think they hold a lot of the answers for global reform, not just doing away with qualified immunity. Absolutely. Yeah, I I think it's these bad officers uh, that qualified immunity lets off the hook that make it hard for all the rest of the officers. That's right. It does make it makes it extremely hard. Um, and even when the good officers are trying to do the right thing by reporting bad officers, they end up the ones that get the punishment. Other officers are not backing them up. They get the assignments that uh, nobody wants. So there's a whole cultural uh, dysfunction within policing. That's exactly right. And it's been accepted. I mean, even if as we look at, you know, we just passed, you know, May 31st as a nation recognizing Black Wall Street, the massacre itself. And when you dig into that history, by way of example, of what we're talking about, law enforcement was involved in deputizing this white male mob that went in and indiscriminately shot and killed black people. Private planes flying over Greenwood, dropping bombs on those people. For what? It was pure, unadulterated race hate. When we think about, or anti-blackness, to be more pointed, when we look at even the 60s and look at some of the footage of the water hoses and the barking dogs, that was done in our name at the hands of people who had taken oaths 
whether it was firefighters with the water hoses, which very rarely are there incidences where firefighters are involved because people love firefighters and nurses, <laughs> without a doubt. Let me throw that in. But when you look at that stuff, we can't be delusional. So I'm just giving two examples of a, of a long storied history about law enforcement and other people who have government titles and what they did with those titles officially to make the lives of black people hard. And that's being kind when I say hard. You mentioned this oath that every police officer takes and the oath is to be accountable. It's to report bad actions by other officers when you see them. And there's guys that are taking that oath and essentially ripping it up and ignoring it. And it's no big thing. It's like, it's like the norm. Well, you took an oath, but we didn't really expect you to mean it. But we accept it. The collective we, you know, when the George Floyd was murdered, there was a, a chief in, in, um, Tennessee. I don't know what city it was, but he, told his force. He said, if anybody thinks what happened to George Floyd is okay, you need to turn in your badge. His his name is uh, Chief Roddy. We need more chiefs like him because that kind of stuff comes from the top. So even before we get to talk about qualified immunity, let's talk about the culture that permeates within law enforcement that says it is okay to do bad things to people, to lie, to steal in some cases, and we're going to protect you. Because there's this shield. And to your point, Aloe, that you were making, you know, that those types get protected. And the person that may have the courage to tell the truth about what's happening in a department, they're the ones that are maligned and ostracized and not protected. That is a cultural phenomenon that is bigger than even doing away with qualified immunity. But I will say that in terms of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, there's a lot of different reforms in it, but the only one that's based on holding cops accountable when they don't follow the rules is ending qualified immunity. And isn't it interesting that that's the only one that is the big problem now that you know, they're essentially saying, well, we'll agree to whatever you want. As long as you don't hold us accountable, it's no big thing. I have a question about how qualified immunity applies to state agents and federal agents outside of the law enforcement. As a representative of the people and you're running for an office, do you feel threatened by, let's say, the erosion of qualified immunity should – uh, the Justice and Policing Act passed through the Senate and, and re removing qualified immunity for police. Do you think that it's next for senators and next for Congress people and, and representatives? No, because I don't think most elected officials, even as I don't believe most law enforcement officers walk around saying we can do anything we want because we have qualified immunity. I just don't think that people who are setting out to do what is right, that doesn't mean that they're perfect are thinking about in a conscious way, oh, I got qualified immunity. Let me just do whatever I want. I just don't believe that most conscious-minded people think about it in that way. Most people are just trying to do the best that they can in their job. Sometimes you make mistakes. And when we think about law enforcement, it is a very dangerous 
profession. Let's make no mistake. Officers have been shot at a routine traffic stop, not doing anything wrong, treating people with respect. Uh, they've been caught up. You know, there. I had a neighbor and I, I, I forget how many years ago he died. I, I'm sure it's been more than 15, but he, he was killed in pursuit of a suspect. And that suspect turned around and shot him and killed him. He lived on my street. He had two little kids. You know, I worked with his family, his wife, namely, and created a scholarship in his name. You know, so let's not walk around there. There's a yin, a yin, yin and a yang to this. There's a balance in the universe. So at the same time, we definitely want to do away with qualified immunity. So bad police officers or law enforcement folks don't get off and any public official for that matter. That's one side of it. But the other side of it, that this is dangerous work. And there are people in law enforcement like my son and others. And, you know, my husband was in law enforcement who do a good job that they really are there to protect and serve. And they can lose their lives at a moment's notice and by, while doing the right thing. Derek Owens was doing the right thing. He was pursuing a suspect and that suspect turned around and shot him and killed him. And now his kids do not have a father and their mother, you know, is a widow. So there 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 are some things here that we have to have a holistic conversation about this. But as we said, most law enforcement should be a part of the solution because it makes them less safe. If people don't believe that there's going to be transparency and accountability and that anybody is above the law, law enforcement can't do their jobs without having a deep relationship with the community. Because let's face it, most crimes that are committed are not committed in front of law enforcement. They need a tip. They need community members to come forward. They need community members to be in partnership with. And if they don't trust that they're going to get justice, why would they cooperate? So it makes law enforcement less safe as well. So policing as it exists in America, just because it has been this way, doesn't mean it has to be the, the, the way that it is moving into the future. And that is doing away with qualified immunity, uh, gets at that. Uh, making sure that law enforcement is playing a pivotal role in truly protecting and serving all communities, dealing with implicit and explicit biases, reforming the the entire legal system. We could talk about a whole bunch of stuff. Bail reform, for example, not allowing private prisons in the United States of America or detention centers in the United States of America, dealing with prosecutors and judges. That is why I will continue to say that as we look at policing, it is just a microcosm of the larger systemic problems in society that we must fix. Absolutely. It is definitely this uh, might is right law and order uh, perspective that has been the narrative for so, for so long within politics that is That's right. m- making uh, voters and citizens feel like this is what we need to follow along lock and step. But when there's new research that comes along that tells us there are different systems and better systems, we need to start employing them. We need to have substantive discussion and we need to start finding the leadership who can help us move in that direction. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Senator. You you speak so passionately about uh, leadership and the direction that you want this this nation to go in. It's it's hard for anyone to doubt that you are the right person for the job. So 
Best of luck with the campaign. You got my vote, Nina. <laughs> Thanks, PC. Thanks, Alice, so very much. And thank you all for what you're doing and shedding a light on this and having a conversation. That's where all of this starts, by having a conversation. And then we get to some action. So thank you for your work in this space as well. So remember, don't just listen to this podcast and then put your phone down. We need you to act now. Now is when this legislation is moving through the Senate. You can share this podcast on social media using the hashtag unaccountable and tell all your family and friends about it. You can also go to holdcopsaccountable.org to join the campaign and keep up to date. If you sign up for emails, we'll tell you exactly when we need you and what to do to abolish qualified immunity. We'll see you next time. This is a Crowd Network podcast presented by me, Aloe Black, and my co-host, Ben Cohen. It was produced by Luis Gwilliam and Michael Epstein, and edited by Mickey Curlin. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. <laughs>